At the start of 1812, William Horsfall was a wealthy man. Already from money, he'd seen colossal success by investing in the technology needed to industrialise his mills, laying off local workers and outcompeting skilled tradesmen. He ruled over his little kingdom in Marsden, a small town in the north of England between Leeds and Manchester, with what he considered to be a firm but fair hand, regularly taking rides as a show of strength and making statements in the local press about the measures he'd take to defend his business against worker uprisings. Many of these workers would disagree, of course. Even aside from the hundreds of skilled tradespeople whose jobs were rapidly being engineered out of existence, leaving them and their families ruined, Horsfall seemed to take delight in theatrical displays of oppression. He had even installed a functioning cannon on top of one of his mills, pointed in the direction of the workers' neighbourhoods, as an intimidation technique against rebellion. In one of his many statements to the press, Horsfall had bragged that he would ride up to his saddle in the blood of those who opposed him. He was a wealthy man who took delight in power over others, operating, as most in his position do, with cruel indifference towards the plight of the people whose labour he lived off of. On the afternoon of the 28th of April, 1812, William Horsfall was out on his weekly ride to Huddersfield Market when four men stepped out of the bushes and shot him multiple times. The fatal blow struck him in the groin, severing a major artery, and although he managed to ride away and back to his house, he died of infection and blood loss 36 excruciating hours later. His last words were reported to be, These are awful times. The names of the men who shot him were George Meller, William Thorpe, Thomas Smith, and Benjamin Walker. They were Luddites, and they are heroes. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. Luddite has received a sickening rhetorical beating over the past 200 years. It's been flattened entirely from the original diverse working class movement against predatory industrialization into a pejorative for people who can't type. The Luddites were first named after Ned Ludd, a weaver from a town near Leicester, who allegedly smashed two knitting frames in what was described as a fit of passion. Interestingly, there's very little information about the real Ned Ludd, to the point where it's possible the character is entirely apocryphal. The emergence of the Luddite movement in the 1810s required a level of anonymity, which means a lot of public letters, manifestos, and bits of correspondence were signed Ned Ludd as a pseudonym for the striking radicals. The focus of the Luddites as a decentralised movement was on how technology was being used to destabilise ways of life and impoverish rather than benefit humanity as a whole. It's a message which has only grown in relevance over the years. Human society has only gotten more efficient, 
The workforce required to provide the basic amenities for millions of people has shrunk significantly as automation has gradually catamaried more and more human labour into a giant ball of pneumatics and silicon. The example which always leaps to mind first, for me, is the Combine Harvester, first patented and popularised in 1835 by Hiram Moore, a device which radically changed the average person's relationship to food and agriculture. I remember being taught about harvest festivals in primary school, and feeling like they came from an alien world. Imagine having that sense of connection to the land, to the food you eat, to the feast and famine cycle of nature. Industrialization makes that the concern of a very tiny number of incredibly overworked rural farmers, mostly eking out a living on landlorded farms owned by home county's aristocrats. That's not even taking into account the many thousands of workers outside of the imperial core of Britain who spend their entire lives working to ensure that our shelves remain stocked. As workers turn consumers, we get the shit end of the stick in both ways. Disconnected from the means of production, completely alienated from the world as a material system, and yet subservient to those who control its produce. We're fighting tooth and nail to rent a tiny piece of that which, by all rights, should already belong to us. The world is ours, but it's been stolen, and we're being forced to buy it back, with interest. Of course, it's important not to overstate the role of technology. An awful lot of what we now think of as automated labour is actually performed by low-paid workers in other parts of the world, with layers of scripting and obfuscation built in just to make us feel better about it. This is going to make me sound real stupid, but it was a genuine moment of wonder when I realised that every stitch in my clothes will have been done by a person somewhere, likely in Vietnam or China these days. I'm so distanced from the labour which goes into the products I consume that I'd subconsciously assumed that someone must have invented an automatic t-shirt making machine by now. Such devices do exist, but they're expensive to run and maintain, and it's easier just to set up a factory somewhere which churns out thousands of the same thing according to patterns designed in a different part of the globe. Human life is cheaper than automation, but companies seek the prestige of the automated process for marketing reasons. A friend of mine once told me that their colleague was looking to buy a new build house just because they didn't like the idea of living somewhere that other people had been, and to me, that really sums up the whole prestige of automation, the fetishization we attach to it. It's the idea of being spiritually clean, untouched by messy human emotion, even though anyone who's ever worked on a building site will tell you exactly how messy they can get. Our phones arrive covered in sticky back plastic, vacuum wrapped and sealed against the elements, and it's easy to imagine some vast machine doing every bit of the manufacturing process, all sterile and unsullied, a place morally defensible precisely because of its lack of humanity. There can't be labour exploitation if it's all automated, surely. The reality is that almost every part of the little black box I carry around with me was made by a person, with a whole rich interior life that is just as important and worthy of human dignity as my own. Much easier to just not think about it, to ignore the ghosts which live inside our machines, inside our houses, inside our heads.
What if those ghosts refuse to be ignored, though? The Modern Lee Valley is a fascinating case study on environmental restoration and the side effects thereof. It's still so strange to me to walk through the ex-industrial neighbourhoods down by the river and see desirable new-build flats going up in an area that was once considered the industrial sewer of the city. The River Lee runs from Bedfordshire, down through Hertfordshire and into London, eventually joining the Thames as a tributary in East London at Bow. It's got a long history as a route for industrial goods back and forth from the various factories which were built on its banks in East London and then further up to the north. There have been breweries on the river for hundreds of years, taking in thousands of tonnes of hops and churning out millions of litres of beer, often while dumping industrial runoff back into the river. But there are also several major arms manufacturers, including the Royal Small Arms Factory and the Congreve Rocket Factory. Naturally, this means the river itself had a deeply unlovely reputation for pollution and environmental carnage. It's definitely true that a lot of unprocessed industrial waste has wound up in it, but this has largely been cleaned up since around 2008, when preparation for the London Olympics started and the state of the water became a hot political topic due to its use in the Games. This river cleaning has had a genuinely positive effect on the wildlife, but it also goes hand in hand with a huge wave of gentrification and urban clearance which destroyed historic communities and militarised the entire area. Part of me wants to go down this rabbit hole and talk in detail about the huge mess caused by the London Olympics, but that's a whole episode in itself, so I'll leave that aside for now. The upshot in 2021 is a huge increase in new builds and high-density housing, which has unfortunately priced a lot of people out of the area. Northeast London is still one of the cheapest places you can live north of the river, while still being close to a tube line, but it's definitely changed a lot over the past 20 years. I have a dear friend who worked in one of the breweries on the River Lee. It's not one of the legacy companies, they've only been there since 2013, moving in during the post-Olympic gold rush when dozens of factories and old industrial buildings became available again, some for the first time in years. The building itself though was a classic bit of Victorian warehousing, a proper old rat run of buildings that had been subdivided and knocked through dozens of times in the intervening years, and which has housed more businesses than the average shopping mall. The brewery he worked for had been operating out of South London for about seven years at that point, and was part of the craft beer explosion that happened in the late 2000s and early 2010s. The huge warehouse on the River Lee was perfect for them, since it provided not only warehouse space to hold all their brew tanks, but also access to the cultural cachet associated with the postcode, as well as enough room for a bar and event space that opened out onto the waterfront. A little about my friend, he's much like me, in that he's that classic millennial generalist, skills-wise, an accumulation of a couple dozen different jobs and side gigs whose CV has a bit of everything on it. 
This means we're both absolutely stuck at entry level in any company we apply for, despite him being outstandingly competent at basically everything he does. I can't speak for myself in that regard. I've got probably a dozen friends with the exact same problem. Companies don't hire for the long term now, so you wind up treading water, daisy chaining between fixed turn contracts and failing startups, never getting promoted into one of those lifetime jobs that people used to support families with. He was hired at the brewery because he's got a little bit of programming in his past. Mostly just pivot tables and VLOOKUP in Excel, but that's enough to impress a lot of managers. And they needed someone to help update their stockroom system. It wasn't very sexy work, but it had steady hours and it was a back office position during a pandemic, so he snapped it up. He was also kind enough to let me into the warehouse on a Saturday evening to poke around, since he knows all about my weird little obsessions, and he said there was something there I definitely find interesting. The warehouse itself is a sprawling, multi-tiered building, with those tall Victorian glass panel windows that catch the evening light at just the right angle to make the dust motes sparkle in the quiet corners. It was dead quiet in there when I visited, since only a few staff work Saturdays and the bar was closed. They were taking the opportunity to do a few renovations, which is part of what prompted my friend to invite me in. They'd opened up some of the old sub-basement levels, normally kept locked when not in use, and he knew I'd be itching to get inside. In 2020, hell, now, breweries are in a bit of a strange place. First and foremost, there are dozens of the bastard things, especially in that area, all competing and fighting with each other for space in a wildly overcrowded market. And that means one thing in marketing terms. Everyone's looking for a gimmick. Walking through the back rooms was like strolling through a time capsule of the past 10 years of short-lived pop cultural moments. You remember that period in 2011 when everyone thought twirly mustaches were the funniest thing going? Remember drinking out jam jars? Remember Save the Rave? Remember plaid shirts and skinny jeans? Remember when everyone was doing faux Banksy graffiti cutouts? The shelves were full of the detritus of marketing work, all the little creative moments filtered through a commercial lens and then discarded as quickly as they came. There are even some of their new designs, long sleeve tees with almost but not quite streetwear graphics printed down their arms. Given I was wearing something similar at the time, it was a little galling. We kept going until we reached a large metal sliding door, padlock hanging loose from the bolt which normally kept it shut. Inside, two flights of wobbly metal stairs led down to the basement level. I knew that the place had been closed off for years, but it was still uncanny to be able to immediately feel the atmosphere change. After the gentle golden light streaming through the warehouse upstairs, the dingy tiled space underneath felt like a tomb. It was much colder, and the strip lights overhead gave everything an unpleasant blue-green glow. Although the space occupied roughly the same footprint as the cavernous warehouse above, it had been subdivided repeatedly into a honeycomb of small, high-ceilinged rooms, connected by multiple, confusingly positioned doors, somehow creating an effect both claustrophobia and agrophobia-inducing at the same time. As a creature feature aficionado, I was constantly scanning the ceiling for something hiding up there, 
ready to drop on me as I moved from space to nasty little space. Some of the rooms have been repurposed over the years as storage, and there were great tanks of beer brewing in the first few. My friend explained that they were mostly experimental batches, flavoured IPAs and limited run stouts put together by the brewers for special events or just for their own interests. The tanks burped out gas from time to time, giving the whole place an extra level of yeasty funk. Beer produces carbon dioxide as it ferments, and although they had a couple of fans set up to ventilate the place, I could still sense that dry, acrid feeling in the back of my throat that you get from the atmosphere being a little off. The damp didn't help. Most of the rooms were tiled with drains in the floor that ran to the river and occasionally flooded back in since the whole place was built beneath the water level. The further we pushed into the basement and away from the stairs, the more the detritus of obsolete industry started to show itself. Between the work tables and the torn out fixtures, boxes and stacks of old packaging for a company called Tipper's Meats started to appear. The tiled walls and the floor drains suddenly made sense. The place was clearly once used as an abattoir slash meat processing plant, presumably entered and exited via some now filled in access way or long demolished set of stairs. The cold, damp atmosphere would have lent itself well to storage in a time prior to modern refrigeration technology, but after the advent of industrialised farming, sometime in the 1800s, when the British Agricultural Revolution was in full swing and the cities needed a steady supply of food for their rapidly ballooning populations. Most of the machinery was long gone, of course, broken down for parts or sold off by one of the later tenants. As we pushed open the door into the final chamber though, we found the exception. Right at the back of the largest room, in the furthest corner from the stairs back up, was a gigantic tangled mess of black painted Victorian steelwork, about 3 metres tall and maybe 20 metres end to end. It took a moment for my eyes to adjust to the low light of the room, to take in what I was seeing all damp metal and sharp edges like a H.R. Giger illustration crossed with a steam engine. It loomed threateningly over us both, somehow feeling larger than the space it inhabited. At one end was a huge tank, surrounded by pipework of all different sizes, which led in turn to a series of conveyor belts and enclosed tanks some with little porthole windows in them that revealed an array of razor-sharp blades inside. And every part of it was connected to a series of pulleys and drive shafts which looped into the walls, and then, presumably, to some means of locomotion outside, or in the river, maybe. The machine had a heavy, threatening aura about it, like the bones of some ancient titan strewn across a psychic landscape of a city built on itself. We took a break to snap some photos of the mysterious machine, and my friend started telling me about his work at the brewery. 
I could tell there was something troubling him. He's a bit of a stoic sort, although in that post-internet way where everything's filtered through a few layers of ironic detachment, so it can be hard to tell if he's really upset or if he's just bored and anhedonic. The invitation to visit had kind of come out of nowhere, but again, I couldn't tell if he wanted to talk or if he was just doing a favour for his nosy basement-dwelling friend. He'd realised, after a few weeks of work, that what he'd really been brought on to do was overhaul and automate their deliveries process. The brewery was doing well, even despite the pandemic, and had received a bunch of venture capital funding which allowed them to move to the new premises. This funding, though, was contingent on a round of cost-saving measures, which basically meant staff cuts. These were to be made by firing all their delivery drivers, some of whom had been with the company since the start and who had been working on unionisation, and rolling their deliveries into a larger contract, probably in conjunction with a few other distributors in the area. My friend's job was a key part of that process. While he'd been told he was going to be tidying up their database and arranging an efficient labelling system, over time he'd come to realise that what he was actually doing was preparing and cataloguing their client database to move it over to the new distributor. The order book they'd used to date was held by the head of the deliveries team, as it had been since the company began, and that fact alone was the one thing preventing them from immediately firing the entire delivery team and outsourcing straight away. I could talk about how the in-house delivery team were more efficient and better at building client relationships, at upselling vendors, and all that sort of thing as a reason against outsourcing their jobs, and it's true that they were excellent at what they did, but I sort of reject that logic. The reason their jobs were at risk didn't really have much to do with efficiency or effectiveness. To the investors who are now pulling the strings, they are a well-paid blue-collar operation, a low-skill job, in big inverted commas, which needed to be broken up for mostly ideological reasons. Which means that I'm happy to support the drivers for strictly ideological reasons in response. They deserve jobs that could support them and their families, for no other reason than that I see them as fellow workers who deserve decent treatment, fair pay, and respect. That's reason enough, I think. Efficiency be damned. My friend was clearly conflicted. He was the definition of precarious worker, technically better paid than those in the warehouse, but on a fixed-term contract, holding tentatively onto the benefits of a white-collar position while still living in a shared flat in East London, without the prospect of buying his own place anywhere in sight. In another ironic twist, several of the delivery drivers were technically much better off than him since they were 40 to 50 year old east end guys who had bought their houses back in the 90s when you could own a three-bedroom house in bethnal green for 40 grand he desperately wanted to help but he also knew as everyone who graduated after the 2008 recession does that one bad firing could derail his entire life and force him to move back in with his parents as i say he's kind of a stoic. But as he sat on a pile of old crates for Tipper's meats and recounted his story, I could hear his voice cracking a little. He was in genuine turmoil over how to handle this one.
When I got home, I looked into the end of Tipper's Meats. The machine I'd seen underneath the brewery was a real marvel of engineering, especially for the time period. What the hell was it, and why hadn't it led to greater success? It took a little research, but luckily I have a comrade who works as an archivist at a major trade union. She was happy to walk me through all the info they had about Tipper's Meats, even pulling up a couple of old newspaper columns, which included an illustration of the warehouse back when it was brand new. The place had been designed and built explicitly as an abattoir and meatpacking plant in 1805, 200 years prior to the original founding of the brewery which currently operates there, and the honeycombed basement was set up for cold storage and preparation. It was a technical marvel at its time, a real feat of engineering, and the piste de resistance was the machine we'd seen in the basement. Referred to as the Tipper Meat Processing Device, a typically snappy name for those ever-creative Victorian engineers, the machine wasn't actually finished and operational until around 1810, when the factory had been running normally for five years. Despite that, the article about the opening mentioned a revolutionary new development in butchering technology, which was due to radically change the meat industry in the UK. A series of follow-up articles tracked the development of the machine, side by side with a series of obituaries for workers killed in the process. As far as I could tell, the machine was designed to automate much of the meat preparation process, from slaughter at one end to finalised product, mostly ground pork mince or sausages, at the other end. It was powered by an elaborate series of water wheels set up in the river outside, all far enough underwater to avoid interrupting shipping in the channel. This meant two things. Firstly, that stopping it was incredibly difficult, since the drive shafts had to be manually disengaged. And secondly, that repairing it required deep water diving in a narrow shipping lane. I can track at least three deaths directly attributable to the building process, and a further four or five which occurred in the right time frame and neighbourhood that they're likely connected, despite being written up as generic industrial accidents. Nonetheless, the Tipper family must have had a friend in the newsroom at the local paper, because they continued to get breathless coverage of their incredible new machine, even as the body count piled up. Even once it was complete, the issues were many and numerous. As my photos confirmed, Large sections of the device are made of solid cast iron boxes with an array of spinning blades and grinding parts mounted inside them, and can only be repaired by literally crawling inside the belly of the beast and sticking your hand into the trap. This had predictable consequences, and there was a whole class of people who became known as Tipper's Boys, who'd lost fingers or entire limbs trying to repair it. And that's just the survivors. The automation of meat preparation is something that hasn't been mastered to this day, even with the computerization of the industry, so obviously the machine was imprecise. It jammed regularly, requiring a dedicated staff of nimble-slash-desperate workers ready to risk their bodies for it. Luckily, there were plenty of people available. The day it was completed, the Tipper family fired most of their regular workers, breaking up the early rumblings of trade union activity in the area 
and abruptly forcing a few hundred families into crushing poverty. It really was the worst of both worlds, industrialization-wise. Not only were people forced out of work to increase the profits of the factory owners, those who were retained found their jobs harder and more dangerous than ever. But there was a solution. Late in the evening of May 3rd, 1812, a dozen masked assailants broke into the factory, where they knew Mr. Tipper would be working late, supervising an overnight shift. The door had been left open by a shift manager who had been fired earlier that day for the crime of refusing to send his own son into the machine to clear a jam. Tipper had sent another local man in his place, who'd lost a hand in the process. The group snuck through the quiet warehouse, past the tall windows, past all the signage and advertising materials for Tipper's Meats, which were stacked in one corner, and came down through the same rickety staircase I'd descended with my friend. Some of them were missing fingers or hands, another walked with a cane, and was supported down the stairs by his comrade. They walked through the echoey refrigeration chambers, their footsteps masked by the sound of the meat processing device continuing to grind away in the far corner of the factory. As they did so, the overnight workers kept their heads down, pretended they didn't notice, looked the other way. None of them were able to describe the group to police in contemporary reports for some reason. Finally, the group marched unsteadily into the machine room, where Tipper was standing on a balcony overlooking the device. Silently, working as one, they picked him up bodily, paying no mind to his screams and protestations. Then, with very little hesitation, they fed him into the machine, legs first. I'd love to tell you that my friend at the brewery made the right choice about his work on the delivery system. This is normally the part of the show where I'd tell you he was possessed with the spirit of Ned Ludd, where he felt some grand transformative moment grasp him and guide him into rejecting the work as immoral. I'd love to tell you all that and more, and for this to be that kind of episode. The difference is, of course that the group who fed Mr. Tipper into the machine and then smashed it to pieces so badly that it would never run again were working together. They got away with it because the community rallied around them, refused to turn them into the constabulary, supported each other through the hard times to do what they knew was right. My friend didn't have that. He didn't have a union. He barely had a community. You can't run a GoFundMe for someone who was fired for industrial sabotage. There are no hardship funds for guys caught machine breaking. What he did do 
was follow the classic millennial middle path. The one little bit of resistance we can all get away with. He pretended to be really, really shit at his job and waited for his contract to run out. Meanwhile, he tipped off the delivery drivers to what was going on and they redoubled their unionisation efforts. They've joined up with an independent workers' union and are currently wrangling with management over recognition, which will likely forestall the efforts to outsource their jobs away. The Luddites were heroes, but they were heroes, ultimately, of a workers' society. The story I told at the top of the show, of the guys who shot Horsefall, was part of a much larger labour movement. The individual acts of heroism pale in comparison to the bravery of everyone working together to try to build a better world. So, go. Be terrible at your job. Gum up the works. Cause problems. You're part of a proud history. But, more than anything, know that it takes a village, or a union, to destroy a machine. Legs first. episode of Subterraneans. Cutting the line. YouTube explorers of rooftop heists. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app, since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex. Solidarity forever. Thanks for listening.